Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Exodus 33. Now, some of you are a little surprised to see me because I told you last week I wasn't going to be here. Surprise! I was thinking about like digging a little pit in the stage here and then popping up out of it to surprise everyone. But uh, the uh, next week, and I, I want to brag for just a moment uh, on our board uh, and our financial deacons. Uh, they're going to be preaching next week. Um, what I want to brag on them about, I love, I love, I love these men. And I love their heart more than anything. And so I think we've got two of them in the room right now. Uh, Mark Hecklinger and Kurt Munson. Kurt Motzinger is another one of our elders. And then Tim Davis uh, is going to the bathroom or something. Slacker. Um, but uh, he, is, he is another one of our, on our financial committee, uh, one of our deacons. Uh, they are going to be up here next week leading service. They asked for one more week to prepare. Um, what I, what I want to brag on them about, though, is not what typically would get bragged about. Um, they are, were, maybe still are, so nervous. Um, and their comment to me was, we just don't want to mess anything up. Uh, and, but y'all, I love that attitude um, because it, it shows reverence for the house of the Lord, right? It shows reverence for this church. Um, and so I assured them, pastoral counseling, you are not strong enough to screw up the will of God, right? Hey, y'all, maybe somebody needs to hear that today. You're not strong enough to screw up the will of God, right? Lots of times, you know, we, we look at the will of God as this, this thing that, like, we're standing at a fork in the road, and it's like, well, do I move to Florida, or do I stay in Ohio, or do I take this job, or do I take this job? Do I wait, or do I go? Oh, man, and if I screw it up, the will of God's going to be all messed up, and it's going to screw up God's plan. You are not strong enough to screw up God's plan, right? Rest, and choose and walk because whatever you choose that was God's plan for you right it's crazy thing this sovereignty of God but but really y'all when I when I brag about these men that sit on these committees and that are elders of this church what I'm bragging on is their humility and those are the kind of people that we want to lead us right people are going who are going to be humble who are going to say God I'm not in control here I'm giving complete control to you. And so that's just a, a boast on them because they would never do it themselves. But you're in good hands next week, Gospel House. Gospel House, we are in good hands as a church, right? Because we're going to walk together in humility. Amen? Amen. So anyway, on to Exodus 33. Here I am. We're going to be talking about Exodus 33 today. This used to be one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I know I say that all the time. I actually brought my old Bible. This is my old Bible. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is a NASB minister's Bible. So to show you how old this is, this was bought for me on Father's Day by Elam and Jana. This was before any of the other little Metzger children's existed. So this was back in uh, June of 2013. 
So that was a uh, full year before I officially went into full-time ministry. So see, Jana was planting seeds. Wives, we do that, right? Planting seeds. She really wanted to get in on that pastor's salary. You know, she was really hoping, you know, to plant those seeds and get Jeremy into ministry, and then we'll really financially just shoot through. I'm just kidding. But she, was, she bought me this Bible, her and Elam. And you know, when you, some of you all, you got Bibles like this. You can tell where your favorite passage in the Bible is because it gets these, these natural creases. I actually just had to super glue mine this week because the, the binding you can see is, is torn right here. But when you flip the Bible open, it just naturally opens to the passage that you spend the most time on, right? Exodus 33 and John 15 are two passages in this Bible that when I open it, it just opens straight to those because the binding is so worn on those passages. Exodus 33 used to be one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And I absolutely love this desperation prayer of Moses. God, I pray you, show me your glory. And I've, I've taught on this before here. I'll teach on it again. But the, the NASB Bible, it has an exclamation point at the end of Moses's request for God. And the NASB Bible is not like a teenage girl's journal, right? Y'all know the teenage girls, y'all who used to be teenage girls, right? You know how your journal looks? Exclamation point at the end of every sentence, right? Sometimes I do that when I text people back, and it's like, okay, I gotta chill on the exclamation points, right? But the NASB translation, they don't use exclamation points often. So when they do, you know that it's impactful, right? You know that Moses is saying something. So Moses is crying out with everything in him, God, I pray you, show me your glory. So this used to be my prayer. I prayed this all the time. I wore out the binding on my Bible, and you know you can also tell because I've got just about every verse underlined and circled, and all the margins are filled with you know, notes in there about different things that God spoke to me and, and what I wanted and all of that stuff. But this passage, I absolutely devoured. And I want to turn our attention here as we start to talk about the gospel house and this new direction that God's calling us to. It's you know, not really like a new direction, but Jan and I were talking this week, and, and it almost feels like a relaunch of the gospel house. That's where I feel like God is, is pushing us up to, and it's, it's super exciting. But Exodus 33 is going to be an incredible resource for us as we prepare to take these new steps. Because Exodus 33 shows us the nation of Israel. Just having left their slavery in Egypt and God preparing his people to enter into the land that he promised to them all the way back to Abraham. A land that hundreds of years in the making, this promise that God made to the nation of Israel that you will someday inherit this land. A land flowing with milk and honey. This perfect possession that you will possess. And one of the biggest takeaways that we get from Exodus 33 is an incredible comfort in the fact that we may not always know where we're going, right? We may not always know exactly what God is calling us to do, but that doesn't matter. 
because the reality is where we're going is not nearly as important as who we're with. And as long as God is with us, as long as God is for us, who can stand against us, right? But we have to make sure we get this priority right because we can prioritize the wrong thing and prioritize where we're going or who we're going to be over who we're with if we're not careful. So today I want to look at Exodus 33, and I want to look at these three things specifically. First, we're going to look at the problem. This is the problem that the Israelites had, and it's the problem that we have if we're not careful. Second, we need to look at the fact that we need to prioritize God's presence over God's promise. And then finally, we need to talk about how we get there. So first up, the problem. This wasn't in our scripture reading for today. This is taking a little bit longer view of Exodus 33, but we've got to ask the question, why is Moses begging God to go with them into the promised land, right? Why even ask? You would assume that God's just going to go with them, right? But before we get to Exodus 33, we see this. Says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his jewelry. This is right off the tale of Exodus 32. Exodus 32 is familiar to some of us. It's the part of the Bible, the passage of Scripture, that talks about the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to talk to God. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and all sorts of other laws that the Israelites are supposed to obey and follow. And while he's up there, he's up there for a long time. And anybody who has ever waited on a promise of God, you start to get a little antsy, right? The Israelites got a little antsy. And so they walked up to Aaron and they said, we don't even know what's happened to this Moses guy. He might be dead for all we know. So make us something we can worship. Make us something so that we know we're not alone. And so they take all of the gold and the articles of jewelry and stuff that they have and they throw it into the fire. And according to Aaron, this golden calf just pops out. Now, you know, it's kind of like when you ask your kids, like, who broke the cookie jar? (laughs) It just fell off the counter, Dad. I don't know. Right? You kind of wonder how much Aaron was like, yeah, we put all the gold in this furnace and this thing just popped out. What? So they make this golden calf. Now, it's what, here's what's really interesting about the passage. If you go back and read Exodus 32, a lot of times when we read this, we view this golden calf as this false god that the Israelites make, right? That's not what happened. What happened was they make a golden calf and Aaron says to the Israelites, here is your god, who delivered you from Egypt. It wasn't that it was a different God. It was a visual representation of the God who delivered them from the Israelites. You know, way, way back in the day, we've, we've kind of relaxed on this a little bit. Way back in the day, it was a sin to even attempt to draw a picture of God. In ancient Judaism, that was a sin. You couldn't try it's a sin to try because in the Ten Commandments, 
it says that you shall not create a false image, right? That false image does not mean a false god. It means an image that is false of the one true God. So it's not that the Israelites were like, forget this, we're worshiping some other crazy stuff. That's not what they were saying. What they were saying is, this is an image of what we, maybe not even what we think God looks like, but what's going to stand in the place of God. But God says, you can't do that. You can't do that. Now here's the other thing with God. Whether this pronouncement that he makes here in Exodus 33, verses 3 through 4, whether it comes right off the tail of Exodus 32 in this golden calf, or whether it comes years down the road or years before, it doesn't really matter. We've talked about this before, but theologically speaking, God exists outside of time. So when God looks down on our timeline, he sees everything as if it's happening right now, right? Chase, we talked about implications, right? Chase the implications of this. There is incredible comfort in this, y'all. There's actually a theologian, J.I. Packer. This is what he says about this. He says, there is tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. What's that mean? God has seen every sin that you have ever committed. Y'all, for as much as you try to hide, (laughs) right? We do that, don't we? Adam and Eve did it. They tried to hide in the Garden of Eden. We try to hide from God. We know we can't, right? God has seen every sin you have ever committed. God has also seen every sin you will ever commit. Not a single one of those sins has been enough to scare him away. You see the grace that God extends? He still gave his son. So when God says to the Israelites, you're an obstinate people, he's saying, yes, in Genesis 32, or Exodus, I'm sorry, Exodus 32, you're an obstinate people. But he's also saying, you're also going to wander in the desert for 40 years, and you're still going to be an obstinate people. You're going to ask for a king, and you're still going to be an obstinate people. Those kings are going to lead you to worship false gods and and other nations and chase all of these things, and you're still going to be an obstinate people. God knew at every point, every sin that Israel had committed, that Israel will commit. And he still chose to go with them. So even when God lays this out here in Exodus 33, he knows everything about Israel. And he knows what Moses' answer to him is going to be. Doesn't he? So this is a test. God is putting out this test for the Israelites to say, I can't go with you. Because if I do, I might kill y'all. Because you just can't get it right. Now what are the Israelites going to do? Thankfully, Moses and the Israelites passed the test. Right? Moses says, God, if you're not going to go with us, we don't want to go. But God's putting it out there. What's more important to you? But I wonder if we would do the same. Church. Church. 
This is pure conjecture. Look at right here. When the people heard this sad word, do we view this as a sad word today? Because what's God saying? God's saying, go ahead. Here is the promise. This is what I promised you, Israel. Take it. All the promises are yours. Walk into it. And if I don't go with you, I won't kill you. Now we read that today and we say, hey, <laughs> I get the promise and I don't have to be killed. Win-win. Right? We have a way in the church today of prioritizing God's promises. And all we view are the promises of God without the presence of God. And we assume, now we beat this horse to death, but we assume if we're blessed with worldly blessing, well then God's presence has to be with us, right? Does it though? Is that what the Beatitudes say? Is that what Jesus calls blessing? But I'm afraid that we've prioritized God's promises to the point where we look at this and I don't know that we see a sad word in it. Hey, I, gotta keep, I get to keep doing my life my way, and I get to walk into everything that God promised. Right on. But God's ways are higher. And with God, he shows us, not a win-win, but a win-win-win. Right? Because we get the promise, we don't get destroyed, and we get the presence because God's presence goes with us. But we have to prioritize God's presence over the promise. The promise is nothing without God. And if we learn anything from the Beatitudes, we learn how backwards we really get this, right? Our definition of blessing is so backwards. And because our definition is backwards then our priorities get backwards too. Because if God's presence is going to go with us, we must do things his way. Guys, that's the only way that God's presence goes with us. If you insist on doing things your way, there's no promise of God's presence. But if you do things God's way, then God's presence goes with you. So the question is, Gospel House, are we willing to sacrifice our way of doing things in order to get God's win-win-win scenario? We've beat that horse to death, right? We've talked about it, so I'm not going to continue on that. But I do want to look at why it's so important for God's presence to go with us. This is from our scripture reading today in Exodus 33, 15-16. Moses says this to God, and this is where Moses passes the test. This is where the Israelites pass the test. Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? Why do we need God's presence, church? 
Because that's the only thing that sets us apart from the rest of the world. How is anyone going to know that we are God's people if his presence isn't with us? And y'all, this is common sense, right? When we chase blessing, we get what? More stuff, right? Well, look at the blessing of God, blessing upon blessing, favor upon favor. Y'all, I can point to millions of different people who don't care a lick about what God said who are doing plenty well for themselves. You want to talk about the blessings of God being pressed down and shaken and running over when we count them as material blessings? Y'all, look at all these CEOs. I'm not saying every CEO in the world is evil, but look, half of them, they don't care what God says, right? They're not seeking God's blessing. So we really think that by owning a bunch of crap on this earth, that's going to distinguish us from the rest of the world so that we can say, oh, look at all the stuff God's blessed me with. Come on. But God's presence, when God's presence goes with us, that sets us apart. His presence shows the world that there is something different about us. And here's the reality. That will make some people hate you. When they see God's presence, when they see that you live differently, they will hate you for that for no other reason than you do things different than the world does. But it will make others run to you. There will be others who see that undeniable presence of God in your life and they will be drawn to you. And there's nothing that will be able to keep them away. But make no mistake, the answer is not to become like the world. A.W. Tozer once said, Modern Christians hope to save the world by being like it, but it will never work. The church's power over the world springs out of her unlikeness to it, never from her integration into it. Look at how the world measures success, church. Numbers, popularity, power, riches. How does God measure success, though? Obedience. Adherence to his will. It's by his power and his presence that we succeed or we fail. God measures our success based entirely on our nearness and likeness to him and nothing else. Look at what he tells Moses in Exodus 34. It says, Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people among you, or I'm sorry, among whom you live, will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. Be sure to comply with what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Ammonite from you, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusites, all the ites, right? God goes with us. 
Gospel House, God goes with us. No matter where we go, or no matter what we are called to do from this point forward. And if God goes with us, people will see him working through us. It's the most duh point you've ever heard, right? Right? If God goes with us, then people will see him working through us. Y'all, this is why it tells us in 1 Corinthians, God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God uses the weak things of the world to embarrass the strong. God does not need you to have a PhD in theology in order to preach his word. Right? God does not need you to be able to lift semi-trucks and do all of these crazy things. He doesn't need you to have 9 billion followers on Instagram or social media for you to make a difference for his kingdom. If you've got three people in your immediate sphere of influence and you disciple those people well, you will do more for the kingdom of God than somebody who posts Bible verses on social media, little scripture passages, who's doing it outside of the power of God. God doesn't need you to be strong. He doesn't need Christians to be strong. Because God's not trying to attract the lost to Christians. Right? He's trying to attract the lost to him. And so if I can lay myself to the side, what have we been talking about for the past couple months? Right? If I can lay myself to the side and point everything I am to Jesus, that's what God's looking for. Not for me to be a personality. Not for me to be a great speaker or me to be a great preacher. But for me to point everybody to Jesus. That's what God wants. He is not looking for how smart and intelligent Christians can be. He's not looking for how much more creative Christians can make their movies than the world. Right? Guys, this stuff gets taught in the church all the time. He's not looking for how much more loving Christians are than the world. Now look, does he want Christians to be loving? Yes. Does he want Christians to be creative? Well, sure, if that's what he's telling you to do. Does he want Christians to be intelligent? Yes, <laughs> honor him with what you have, right? But stop relying on yourself to draw people to Jesus because it never works. And you see it, y'all. In some of these churches where these mega pastors have moral failures, they draw men and women to themselves and the burden's too much for them to carry. And they end up having moral failures or, or falling away or, or whatever it is. And when they do, what happens to the church that they leave behind? It scatters, right? Because you've built up a bunch of followers who are running after a person who's got some talents. That's never what Jesus asked us to do. I think I made that clear last week. That's not what we're here to do, right? Right? Jesus isn't drawing you to me, church. 
I will shepherd you, I will take care of you, I will tell you what the Holy Spirit tells me to tell you. But he's not drawing you to me. He's drawing you to himself. And I will be the pastor who points you to him. Never to me. Clear? But we got to get out of the way. So the question is, how do we get there? What do Moses and the Israelites do to prioritize God's presence over his promise? Yeah, I mean, let's be real here. Think of how difficult this would be for the Israelites. Think of how long they've been waiting for this promised land, right? I mean, and you've just come out of slavery in Egypt. It's not like they were staying at the Marriott waiting for this promised land to open up so they could step in, right? Brutal slavery in Egypt. And they finally get out, and they're standing right on the cusp of the promised land. And God says, "Uh, not yet. And then they've got this nutso leader, Moses, who's standing there saying, hey, listen, guys, I just talked to God. He said he's not coming with us. I know you can see the milk and honey. It's just over the hills. But y'all, we're not going if God's not going with us. What do you think everybody is thinking? Moses, can't we just go get like a little bit of the honey? Like just to taste it, see what it... This is an incredible sacrifice that they make, right? Moses and the Israelites refuse to go anywhere that God won't go with them. But that's not all. And and I think that refusal to go shows what's going on in their hearts, right? Because in their hearts, we can see from this cry of Moses that they are desperate to know God, desperate to be in God's presence. This is what Moses says before he cries out, show me your glory. He says, now then, if I have found favor in your sight in any way, please let me know your ways so that I may know you in order that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. I love that prayer from Moses. God, let me know your ways. God, show me how you do what you do, why you do what you do, so that I can know you. And why does Moses want to know God better? So that he can find even more favor in his sight. Right? What's, God, what's Moses saying? He's saying, God, if I have found any favor, if I've done anything remotely right, please not give me blessing, not give me more things, not lead me into the promised land, not, none of those things, not make me an ultra leader, not make these people listen to me, none of it. Let me know your ways so that I can know you better. Guys, there's this dangerous thing out there. I've talked about it a lot, right? We pit theology, doctrine, knowledge of God against 
presence, relationship with God, right? Well, forget religion, find God. And what we mean is, forget all the boring educational stuff over here. Just walk in relationship to Jesus. That's all that matters. The two are never pitted against each other in the Bible. There's no such thing, y'all. And what's Moses' cry here? Moses, or he, he cries out, God, teach me who you are. Teach me the boring stuff, God. He's not saying that. Because Moses knows something that we don't get today. What we see is the boring stuff, theology, doctrine. If you do it in the right spirit, if you do it with God leading you, it's the most incredible stuff that you will ever find. And when you pair that with relationship, whoo, buddy, get ready to worship. Right? Moses wants to see God's glory. That's what he cries out, right? He wants to experience God's presence, but he also wants to know God deeply and richly. He wants to know God's ways so that he can walk in them and find favor in God's sight to make God proud. And God delivers. This is what God says. This is the fulfillment of the promise in Exodus 34. It says, The Lord descended in the clouds and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. There's your relationship, right? There's your presence. God stood there with Moses. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, This is God, y'all. This is God speaking. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished inflicting the punishment of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses asks God to show him who he is, and God shows up and tells him exactly who he is. You all paying attention? This is not what the early church fathers call God, right? This isn't what the disciples say about Jesus. This isn't what anybody else says. This is straight from the mouth of God. God says, I am the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violations of his law and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And how does Moses respond? Moses hurried to bow low toward the ground in worship. 
Y'all, you want to know what our problem is when we approach theology today? Our theology doesn't humble us like this. When we read doctrine and theology and all of these things that tell us who God is, even just that passage, y'all, go home and open up Exodus 34. Here it is, Exodus, you can jot it down, Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Y'all, go home, get by yourself, find a quiet corner, wherever you can. If you have children, turn on Bluey and shut them up for a little while. But find somewhere and open this passage up and read out loud who God Almighty says he is and fall on your face and worship. Church, we have become so dependent on music to worship. We have to have music so that we can worship. Nowhere. There's not a band playing while Moses is up on Mount Sinai right? He's not singing these songs. I've actually heard a theologian say that there's, I don't even remember what it is. It's like the the word, Hebrew word that's used when it talks about God speaking is, is like the image of a flowing river, that God's voice is actually probably more like singing than it is speaking. That's beside the point. That defeats the point I'm trying to make. We get too dependent on music, right? I I mean, honestly, you can raise your hand. Has anyone, when reading doctrine, like who God says he is or, or just character traits of God, has anyone stopped and just worshiped? Some of you have? Good. Have others? Do it, right? You don't need music to worship. Moses didn't need music to drop down when God was declaring who he is to fall on his face and worship. Theology and relationship came together and made Moses drop everything and worship the Lord. He bows to the ground and worships. And all of this All of this happens because this is the cry of Moses' heart. Please show me your glory. God, show me your glory. Gospel House, this has to become the cry of our heart. And thankfully, we don't have far to look. This is one of my favorite bridges from the Old Testament to the New Testament here. I told you all at the beginning how worn my Bible is on this passage, right? Some of you noticed I said this used to be one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's not that I don't like it now, but I don't turn to it nearly as much as I used to. I'm a little embarrassed to tell this story, but when I first got into this, I would pray, God, show me your glory. And now in some, i got to explain a little background information here, but in some charismatic circles, some Pentecostal circles and stuff like this, they talk about this phenomenon called a glory cloud. And so it, it, it's biblical, so like everybody who's like, yeah, Pentecostals, get out of here. It's biblical, it happens in the Bible, it happens in the Old Testament specifically, 
where you know God leads his people by a, a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. See other places where the Israelites you know, open the temple and God's glory comes and fills the temple with smoke so thick that the priests can't even enter the temple to go in. And so when I would pray, God, show me your glory, that was what I wanted to see. God, show me a physical manifestation of your glory. A, a cloud or, or something, show me something. And I would pray it over and over and over again. The closest I ever got, there was one time I was, I was praying it, and I was in uh, a, a room, and there were these like glass walls back behind, but they were fro- that frosted glass, so you can't see like real clear. And so I was praying it hard, like just by myself, nobody else was in there, and I was praying and praying and praying, and I saw a shadow walk past the outside of those glasses. And I went outside, and there was nobody there. That was pretty cool. But I prayed that, y'all. And then one day, God corrected me. Now, like God. And this is exactly what God said to me. He showed me this bridge between Moses' prayer in Exodus 33 and the fulfillment that we have now in John 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God said to me, Jeremy, I have showed you my glory. My glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You want to see my glory? Look to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the glory of God, y'all. We cannot look upon God's face. Humans can't look at the face of God and live. So he made a way for us to see his glory once and for all through Jesus Christ. Moses cried out to God, God, show me your glory. God, show me your ways so that I can see you. And hundreds, thousands of years later, Jesus Christ shows up on this earth. Literally, God who put on flesh so that the world could see the glory of his Father. No veil, no hiding in the cleft of the rock, waiting for God's glory to pass by, no looking upon God's back. But the Son of God, in person, for the whole world to see. Y'all, when we cry out to God, show us your glory. Are we looking to Jesus? Because God has made that abundantly clear. Jesus is who we need to look toward. What kind of church does the gospel house want to be? False. (laughs) Set you up with that one, huh? What kind of church does God want the gospel house to be? I feel a pivot coming for the gospel house, y'all. As we get ready to step into 2024, this year is ending quickly. 
And that's very exciting. I said this last week, but I, I think I can see where God's leading us. But I don't know. But I do know this. It does not matter where we're going. It does not matter what he asks us to do. What matters is, are we going to let him lead us? Are we going to stand here and say, God, we are not going anywhere unless you go with us. You can promise us the world, but if your presence doesn't go before us, we're going to stay right here, right where we're at. The Gospel House started meeting as a plant team in March of 2021. Isn't that crazy? Some of you were there. We started meeting in the Hecklinger's Barn in May of 2021 and then officially launched our Sunday morning services on August 1st of that year. Some of you have been here since day one. Others of you have joined us along the way. Some of you have officially become members here at the Gospel House. Others consider the Gospel House Church your home. This is your family. There are others who aren't here right now, who faithfully watch online every single Sunday, who tune into the podcast throughout the week. But all of us are here for a reason. Everything that we have done up to this point, church, everything that we have been hearing from the Lord, every sermon that has been preached, every word that's been spoken amongst each other, every relationship that you have formed, every prayer that you have prayed, every single thing has all been for this moment. Who are we going to be moving forward as a church? What is the mission that God has for us? Who is God calling us to reach? These are all questions that we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks here. And while we may not know exactly what those answers are right now, I would highly encourage you, pray. For those of you who fast, fast and pray. For those of you who have never fasted before, try it out. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. It just means fasting is just abstaining from something of the world. You can cut off social media, stop watching TV, extended time in the Word of God. But fast and pray and ask God, God, show us where you want us to go. Show me where you want us to go. Like I said, next Sunday, Mark Hecklinger, Kurt Motzinger, Tim Davis, and Kurt Munson are going to be leading you through some of these questions. So please do everything you can to be here. If you can make it, be here. I would even encourage those of you watching online right now, uh, I don't know what your situation is, but if you can be here in person, that's great. Uh, we are most likely not going to stream services next week, um, and we're going to keep all of this in-house. But if you are part of this Gospel House movement, be here, because we need your input. We need you to be part of this discussion moving forward, because the church is bigger than me. It's bigger than our elders, our deacons. It's bigger than all of us. So we've got to come together as Christ's body and figure out what he's telling us to do. But today, 
we draw a line in the sand. Amen? We say together as one body, we will not go anywhere if God doesn't go with us. Are we all in agreement on that? If so, I know without question that no matter what God asks us to do, it is going to be incredible. To quote from Exodus 34, it will be a fearful thing that God will perform in us. Amen, church? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you are pointing to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like Him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you. And remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.